Well, Dan, what a lovely weekend we've all just had over Easter with the weather for once behaving itself. And big question for you, has the chocolate run out? <laughs> yeah, well, what a lovely weekend. Lovely, wasn't it? Yes, the chocolate has finally pretty much gone. I think we did a couple of Lind bunnies. We had a Lindor egg. So yeah, I think the chocolate has finished and probably for the best as well. We've made it through our the, the big slice of Simnel cake that my parents um gave to me which was much appreciated um, but that means we haven't actually got through all of our chocolate so yeah hoping to continue enjoying that but yeah the, I just can't get over how nice the weather was just so nice to sit outside oh it was lovely it was lovely yeah sitting in the garden the sun everything what a pleasure yeah it was really nice so hopefully everyone managed to get some of that as well yeah absolutely and I don't know about you but it feels a little bit like we're back to earth with a bang this week lots of people not appreciating their their alarms yesterday morning this morning but I guess at least it's light when your alarm goes off which makes it slightly easier to get out of bed yeah, I do prefer that in the mornings. Yeah, I'm a bit of an early one in the mornings myself, but it makes it so much easier when you get up and it's actually light. But yeah, funny week this week, isn't it? It feels like some people still maybe away on holidays. A lot of other people like myself kind of trying to struggling to um, remember <laughs> what on earth is going on and which way is up and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and I guess in that context, there was you did a LinkedIn post a couple of weeks ago. I guess some people might have missed it because of the Easter break. All to do with the most underappreciated workplace skill. So if we're back down to earth with a bit of a bang, I thought maybe we'd start with this slightly lighthearted. So so you listed a few. I'm going to read those ones out. And then I'm, I'm really, really keen to hear from you on, on what the comments were, because I think you got a really good response to this one. So you wondered whether it could be brevity. My favorite probably is the next one. Passive aggressive email drafting. Absolute must have skill. Running meetings, pretty PowerPoint slides, well-labeled Excel spreadsheets or, or something else. So what, what kind of stuff were people volunteering? Yeah, well, this, this worked out really well. I managed to somehow get people to really engage with it. I got 42 comments. I personally love a passively, aggressively drafted email. really think that is the absolute winner. But um, people actually really seriously engaged with the question, which was, which was really nice. There were quite a lot of um, answers around sort of the, the, the small bits around teamwork, I suppose, but a bit more than teamwork doesn't really do it justice. And I think part of the problem was that it was quite hard to actually put a pin on what people were getting at here everyone kind of knew what people were talking about but it's like it's those small things someone talked about people who uh, the cultural glue people who remember birthdays remember little things like that little gestures remember to sort of celebrate little things culture carriers was another word that was used so it's kind of celebrating team success the word empathy came up a lot so people showing empathy towards others and having a bit of understanding and there's a bit of a discussion of how you often get sort of slightly diminutive terminology like something like soft skills or even kind of eq i'm not sure is a great terminology for a lot of that and maybe that all kind of alludes to why those are a little bit underestimated so that was kind of saying there's a few things a lot of people saying intellectual curiosity and ability and willingness to learn I actually would put that quite high up there in terms of things that don't get appreciated enough. And then there were some things around just getting on with stuff in an unassuming way, doing the small things right, just general kind of efficiency points and that sort of stuff. So, I mean, there was loads of other things. Someone did eventually say actually um, humor. I think that is actually a very fair answer as well. Although maybe that is properly appreciated. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, it got people thinking, which is always my aim with these questions. I was pleased with that. And actually, it's quite nice. And, and maybe, maybe as you say, it's, it's the reason it's the underappreciated thing. When I glanced through some of the comments, it, it wasn't that often people were saying technical skills and, you know, mental maths type thing. So we, you know, in our industry, those things are helpful. Of course, they're really important, but maybe they're not the under, underappreciated things and, and they're almost a given in this industry. Yeah. I mean, as you probably noticed, I love asking that question about under 
underappreciated because I think it just unlocks a different level of uh, thinking about a subject than just saying what's important, which is a bit more obvious. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess actually on that note, the this whole episode is a little bit focused on perhaps what's underappreciated about passive investing. So should we should we get on with the episode? Let's do the episode. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Investment Uncut. This week, we are talking to LCP's Head of Manager Research, Matt Gibson. Matt, welcome back. Thanks very much indeed. Good to be here. Hi, Matt. As Dan said, you've been on the show before, but I wondered if you could just give a recap of your role at LCP for the listeners that may not have listened to the previous episodes. I lead the manager research teams at LCP, so I'm responsible for ensuring that we have a rigorous monitoring of managers clients are invested in and a research program to identify new, interesting and high quality managers, making sure that the client facing consultants have got the information that they can provide to clients about the managers. And we've got well justified and clear views on the manager's continued applicability to stay as the manager for their investments. We were just double checking over the previous episodes. We've asked you before what the one thing is we should know about you, you won't find on your CV. Obviously, we know you're a runner. You've done some serious super ultra marathon type stuff. Any updates on that that we should know about? Well, the running's been a bit slow in the last few months. I've been injured, a bit of a leg injury, but that seems to be clearing up. So I'm back on the training now and looking for some more events. But I have recently taken up a new sport, which has been keeping up a bit of my time. So I've taken up clay pigeon shooting. So it's a great Ooh. stress relief shooting clays out of the sky. Much harder than it looks, if you want to see the telly. It is another sport my kids are better than me at, so uh, it keeps them entertained as well. That's the problem of starting things when you start at the same time as your kids and they're young and malleable and easy to train, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. How many lessons does it take before you can do a decent effort at shooting them or does it happen straight away? Well, for me, it's incredibly variable. So sometimes I go out and I'll hit half the clays, which I think is a great result. And then the other week I went out and hit two out of 50 or something. It was just <laughs> incredibly variable, but you can pick it up and hit something straight away. So it's good fun. Oh, good. Even though you might only hit two out of 50, it's you still find it a sort of a stress release? Because I think I'd find that so frustrating. I'm not sure. I think I'd end up more worked up than I started. That was a bit frustrating. When it's like that, it's a bit like golf. And you just sort of go out and you <laughs> four or five part each hole. It's just horrible. As an but, amateur yeah. golfer, I know exactly, exactly <laughs> what you mean. <laughs> I was just lining up the smoothest segue I think I've ever thought of there. You were saying that a good result is getting about 50% of your hits on target. And I was saying, it sounds a bit like active managers. Speaking of which, <laughs> we were going <laughs> to... Very good, Dan. Very, Very good. good. Yeah. Thank, thank you. We thank ruined you. that one for that. you a little bit, didn't we? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Matt, we wanted to chat about a piece you recently wrote for our magazine, Vista. And it was a piece about passive investing. And you were asking, I think, some quite different questions about it. So I wonder if maybe you just want to give us a quick outline of what you were talking about in that piece. The active versus passive debate has been going on for many years. And we'll talk exactly what we mean by passive in a second. But it's sort of focused on, can you find managers who can outperform? Or is it too hard? Can any manager outperform? And I was just trying to take a slightly different view on it and say, look, there are quite a lot of assumptions underlying investing in passive in a passive way that relies on active managers actually being quite good at their job 
come on to describe that in a second. And the changes that we've seen in the market with a huge increase in the amount of passive investing, some more technical changes in terms of how research is paid for, how many researchers there are, independent researchers there are out there, means that we just have to go back and look at some of those assumptions, I think, and say, you know, is passive still appropriate in all asset markets? And make sure that we're still happy that passive is appropriate. I think that's a key point, isn't it, is in different markets, because you can say active versus passive as if it's exactly the same answer in every single market, but clearly markets in different asset classes and across different countries work in very different ways. So perhaps later we can talk about your thoughts on how that balance might strike in different areas of the market. Really interested in understanding what prompted you to do this article now? Was there a certain trigger or was it just, it feels to me like this is almost a five-year cycle that every sort of five years someone says, hold on a minute, let's think a bit more carefully about what passive actually means. Are you on a five-year time frame or was there a different trigger? <laughs> just popped up in the calendar reminder. No, it was, <laughs> yeah. there was a certain element of that. I just think we've seen an increase in diversification. People are looking for more markets, looking for more areas. And it's the default in many markets for many investors is what's the passive option? Can I do it passively? And so um, let's take an example. We've seen an opening up of the Chinese onshore markets over the last few years. And question we get, is there a passive option? But less questions of is passive the right option for that market? And so it was really just going back and thinking, you know, what makes passive appropriate? What are the underlying assumptions? Should we just make sure that everyone's still happy with that in all the markets that they're investing in? Is it still the right thing to do? And just reframing the debate a little bit or trying to, instead of thinking about outperformance or underperformance by active managers, it's a little bit more about risk management. Is there a risk here that something could go wrong because you're in passive? And can you mitigate against that? That central question or central point you were sort of making where you were saying, in order to believe in passive, you have to believe in active effectively. Because for the market to be efficient, you need to have active managers who are actually decently good at valuing securities and that sort of thing. I wrestled with that when you sort of said it. And I was like, well, really? Is that true? I wanted to try and argue against it, but I couldn't, basically. I had to basically accept that you were sort of right. And then the other provocative point that you make is kind of saying, well, if I just turned up and said to you, hey, listen, invest 100 million of your money with me. By the way, I'm not going to do any research on any companies. I'm going to go and invest in a ton of companies, but I'm not going to do any research on any of them. That just feels bizarre, but of course that is what happens. And then that's not necessarily a bad thing. It can be fine. But I guess your point is let's not kid ourselves that that's what's happening. Yeah, I mean, back up a little bit, just remind us of what exactly index tracking management is. So passive index tracking management, and particularly here, I think I'm talking about market cap weighted index tracking. So this is where the companies are weighted in line with their market cap, the size of the share value out there. Although we extend it to bonds as well, but mostly talking about equities here. An index provider calculates what the weights of the stock list is, and it also calculates the performance of that list of stocks. And an investment manager goes out and actually buys that. So it takes it from a notional index provider list to an actual investment. And they don't really think about it. Now, that's not quite true. They do think about a little bit about the prices they're buying and, and selling at the margin. They don't want to be done over by someone trying to arbitrage them, but they largely just accept the price that's available in the market. And when certainly when you invest or when I invest into an index tracking fund, the prices are given. I don't bid lower or offer higher than the quoted price. I just accept whatever's out there. And so what is that price? Who's deciding that price? That's everybody else in the market. 
who's not taking this passive approach, but is taking a more discretionary view of, mm, that's a bit expensive, I'm not going to buy at that price, or I might sell at a certain price because I think the stock is no longer worth that value and you know, get a good price for selling. And all of those people are active managers. Now, whether they are paid professional active managers running portfolios for pooled funds or for accounts for some third party, or whether they're just the retail person who's selling and buying shares on their own broker's account, they're a type of active manager. And so if all of those people are determining the price that the passive investors are getting, then you need to believe they're pretty good at doing it in aggregate. You don't have to believe that every single one of them is good, but you do have to believe that on average, they're getting that price about right. And what does about right mean? <laughs> it means you know, using all available information that it's as good an estimate as anybody else could come up with. My initial reaction when you describe effectively those two very high level groups of active investors, so you've got the institutional active managers that have lots of analysts working for them. They've got lots of information, they seek more information and they make probably to all of us, it feels like they're making quite well-informed decisions and you'd, you'd think, well, they're probably on balance going to get the price about right. And then you've got the retail investor, the individual person, and some of those will be extremely well-informed and will do a hell of a lot of research and some of them perhaps less so. But I assume we're still sitting in a position at the moment where the bigger drivers of price are going to be from those larger, assumed very well-informed investor groups. So we don't need to worry too much about retail money pushing prices in in ways that are not the right price and that impacting anyone who's invested at all on a passive basis. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think certainly the retail investor who they obviously aren't doing all of that analysis and due diligence either, but they're probably a fairly small amount of money. And if they offer a price that other active professional investors think is inappropriate, then the professional managers will either snap up a cheap price or sell to them at an overvalued price. So I think you're right. We're talking mostly about professional active managers who are the ones who are driving that price. The concept you just talked about, I think it's referred to as free riding, isn't it? Effectively, the passive investor is sort of free riding on the activity of active managers. And I've heard some people sort of and I think Cliff Asnes is one person who's said this quite publicly, is saying that's fine. That's not a big issue. There's so many situations in life where you free ride on market prices. We don't go and haggle over every thing in the supermarket or on the market stand kind of thing. There's a price there that's broadly determined by market forces and we go and take it. So I guess there's nothing inherently wrong with free riding. But I think what you're saying is be aware that's what you're doing and question the mechanics that's going behind that that price discovery. That's absolutely the point. So is it appropriate that in all markets, relying on that free riding and relying on all those active investors to find the correct, to be a bit careful with what we mean by correct, but <laughs> find the right price, is that going to be appropriate? Or is there a risk that actually that it's not an efficient market and some of these assets, the prices are wildly high or wildly low, and we just can't rely on that price being an, an accurate one? You are free riding when you invest passively. That's absolutely right. The point, though, is really about whether that's appropriate in the market you're investing in. Are there sufficient active managers with enough due diligence, care and skill that you can rely on the price that they, in aggregate, have found for each company to be accurate? 
correct. It's not quite the right word because I mean, new information can come along and can change that value quite quickly. But in light of all the information they could possibly have, is it a fair and reasonable price that that company is being valued at? So Matt, can we perhaps dig into that point around in the market that you're currently investing? Because logically, it seems to me that the answer is going to be different in different markets. But perhaps we could talk about some examples of different markets where that balance of lots of institutional active investors maybe get the price to about the right level versus areas where that might be less the case. Certainly. So there's some evidence around whether there's a good price or not, which has been studied in many markets. And one of the key things that I think is helpful is to look for managers that can consistently deliver outperformance. If there are managers that can consistently deliver outperformance, then that gives some evidence that the price that the market as a whole has can be beaten and therefore is not appropriate price. And so you you can find managers who can outperform. So in many most developed equity markets, there's very little evidence that any manager can consistently outperform beyond the number that you'd expect from chance alone. And so there's good evidence there that the passive investing in developed market equities is perfectly appropriate. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And you've got a good chance of beating or equaling any given active manager. In other markets, there is a lack of evidence that that's the case. So in particularly in emerging markets, equities and emerging market debt, there's very little study or evidence that, that there are no consistent outperforming managers. In some ways, that's quite understandable because the indices there are not particularly deep. The emerging market equities index doesn't cover all of the emerging market equities that are available for managers to use. And in emerging market debt, it's even worse. So it's something like less than 30% of emerging market bonds that a Western investor could invest in are actually covered by the index. So it's a bit more understandable that you can achieve outperformance and consistently achieve outperformance there. And then there are some markets in the middle where there's not much evidence either way. <laughs> so in investment grade and in investment bonds outside of the US, that's another market which may be more appropriate for having an active rather than a passive manager. So in some cases, it's availability of data that might lead to there being, I guess, one phrase we haven't really used yet in this episode, which is maybe surprising, is sort of the idea of market efficiency. So I guess it's another way of describing some of the factors that you've just gone through, Matt, in terms of, I think it's the US equity market that's always been described as a very efficient market. There's loads of information available about all of these companies. So almost how could they not be fairly well priced? And we talk about some of the other areas of the world, so emerging markets being less efficient, partly because of availability of data. But actually, the other key point you've just made, which I think is very important to bear in mind, is there's this huge universe of available investments, only a very small proportion of which is captured by the passive option, which I think is probably an area that's a bit underappreciated. I'm delighted to discover we've come onto the details of index construction. I've been digging into that a little bit recently myself. So before we go there, I was just going to make the point that I guess it is worth revisiting some of these ideas around market efficiency because the market does change a lot. I mean, I remember we were talking to Robin Wigglesworth about his book on passive investing. He was making his point that when he started writing the book, it was something like $4 trillion that was in passive globally. And when he finished writing the book, it was $20 trillion or something ridiculous like that, the, the growth of it. At some point, I guess, you've got to question market efficiency. I think we're not there yet, are we? Even with those huge numbers in the big markets like the US, you can still make that point. But Where do you think we are on that, Matt? Do you think we're still safe in those areas or is the passive starting to 
question it. Well, that I means one of the reasons why I think you should be looking at this, or people should be looking at this, and certainly why one of the reasons I brought it up in this Vista article was you know, there has been such a huge increase in the amount of assets invested passively. That means there are fewer and fewer assets invested actively. Those are the ones making the market efficient. Um, and it's also led to fewer and fewer individual decision makers who are investing actively because of smaller managers have had to close or consolidate to survive. So the numbers are astonishing in terms of the size of the assets managed passively now. So, and we've mentioned the US, we've sort of, I think, agreed that it's a pretty efficient market and investing passively is perfectly appropriate. But of the mutual fund, pooled fund industry in the US, over half of the assets now are invested in a market cap tracking, index tracking way. That's astonishing growth from where we were. Even four or five years ago, it was far, far lower numbers than that. I think you've discussed this with Robin Wigglesworth in previous episodes about that growth. But that sort of hides, and then the data gets really fuzzy after that because it really hides a lot of other stuff going on. So that's pooled funds. There's a lot of money invested for institutions that isn't in a pooled fund. It's on a segregated account. And quite a lot of that is probably invested passively. Quite a lot of it is probably invested actively as well. There's a lot of money that's held strategically in US equities as well. So founders of companies will just hold some shares and they won't trade it. So they're not really part of the efficient market either. And then there's a lot of money that's invested pseudo-passively. So invested with an active manager, but the manager's only making marginal decisions around the outside. And so how much are they driving the price and driving this efficiency of the market? I know, unanswerable question, I think, but it's all leads you to think that there are fewer and fewer truly active managers out there, which raises the question, how efficient is the market? There was a piece, I think, from BlackRock, wasn't there, a little while ago, where they tried to put a percentage on the passive amount. And the figure they came up with was surprisingly a little bit lower, even with all the growth in passive. The percentage figure was a little bit lower than what you might think. They were actually saying somewhere 20-ish percent, I think they were saying was where it is, which surprised me a little bit. But of course, it really depends on how you define that, how you treat those strategic stakes and the kind of passive, pseudo-passive stuff. But I guess their point was, it's got a long way to run before you can start legitimately saying this is a problem for market efficiency. Can we just go back to the point about index construction again? I just wanted to geek out on that a little bit because I do think it's so interesting. <laughs> you, you said the phrase market cap a few times, Matt, and I guess it doesn't take long when you're looking at an index to realize that you can say oh, market cap, market cap, but that is not as clearly defined as we would often like. And just a few examples I always like to point to on that. If you look at, say, developed versus emerging markets, I always forget which way around it is, but one provider, I think it's FTSE, puts Korea in developed, MSCI puts them in emerging. I think it's other way around with Poland. And then if you look at the US, for example, it's often said that if you're managing US equities, if you're active, you want to be benchmarked against the Russell 2000 because it's easier to beat. If you're passive, you want to be S&P because it's a better index. You has to have a profitability criteria to get in there so it's got a higher quality to it so it doesn't take long looking at that just start to think well well, hang on a second this market cap concept is a little bit more squidgy than we would like and then as you're saying extend that all the way to emerging market debt and suddenly you're quite far down that sort of road we'll come on to i think in a minute i'm talking about different indices non-market cap indices but even in market cap indices there's an element of discretion that somebody the index provider has to put in to set the rules around what is and what isn't in the index and how much weight it gets. So, I mean, in another example, strategic investments. So where there's a holding by a strategic investor, some index providers will remove that weight from the market cap because it's 
effectively not tradable by active managers. But as an investor, I'm not sure that's appropriate. I want to know what the average investor is getting, including those strategic holders. There's a lot of discretion involved in there. And it isn't just a single number that you would come up with if you did it from scratch yourself. So passive works as long as active managers continue to exist and operate in the market. Passive isn't quite as passive as you might assume it is. So it feels that as your article does, it's sort of challenging the idea that passive just is an automatic default, making sure investors go in with their eyes open. But clearly passive still has a place in certain portfolios, I guess, Matt. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a perfectly appropriate investment in many markets and many of the larger developed markets, certainly, in my view. Not to say it's the only appropriate approach. We have clients who invest actively. Some believe that they can select or under our advice, we believe we can select managers who can outperform in most of the markets and that maybe they believe it for a profit reason. They, they want to be able to outperform. Maybe they believe it. They take some of the views in my article that there's a risk in investing passively. And actually, I just feel more comfortable having somebody do the due diligence on the underlying investments, someone who's competent and you know, well-informed doing all that work and obviously pay a little bit extra for that. And still prepared to accept that that may still leave me with a index-like type return. Yeah, because the sort of whole passive versus active debate is older to the hills, really, isn't it? And I think I'm sure if you took our colleagues, for example, and polled them all, you'd get a broad church of responses and sort of where they stood on it. I guess part of it is it's not so much trying to get into an argument of which is better, passive or active. It's more where is passive more appropriate versus where is active more appropriate. And that really opens that debate up. That's a different debate than just having this big battle over like, I think markets are efficient. No, they're not kind of thing. It doesn't get you that far. Although I love that sort of argument. It's good fun. It's great fun. (laughs) Certainly had a mixed reaction amongst colleagues at work here that that they just Clearly, I'm going to invest passively. No one can outperform, but in some way, oh, this is, a, as you say, different markets need a different approach. And Matt, the area we haven't really touched on in this episode yet is private markets. So we've talked a lot about listed markets and you can buy an index of listed equities or listed bonds. What do you see the role of private markets being going forward? In the context of this debate, obviously, private markets rarely have any sort of index. It's very hard to buy the entire market or buy a sample of the market that could give you a reasonable approximation to the whole market. People have tried this in the past. UK real estate, there's been a derivative at some points that you could purchase on an index. In private markets, active is the only way, really. You can only invest actively. But the role of private markets more generally, as you've sort of hinted, is becoming more important for many institutional investors. There's a big drive to try to get private markets into define contribution schemes and making sure that members can benefit from some of the diversification of getting access to private markets. And particularly the larger defined benefit pension schemes are largely increasing their private market allocation, or at least need to maintain it as they remain in the markets invested and will go off to some sort of run out position. And activity within private markets is fairly independent of the public market activities. It doesn't impact the active-passive in listed markets debate because it is, I mean, clearly the actual underlying holdings are completely separate because they're privately owned. But if, to take an example, private equity becomes very popular, does that have a sort of leakage over to listed equity or not that you particularly see? It's an interesting question. I hadn't really considered that in any depth. I can't see any direct impact on public markets of the private market growth 
in terms of the valuation. But perhaps there are issues around private equity has got a lot of spare capital that's still to be invested, a lot of popularity amongst institutional investors. And as they find opportunities, some of those opportunities will come from things that are currently listed and they will be purchasing them and taking them off the listed markets. So there's an element of potentially the index becomes smaller at the same time as the people are increasing their allocation to it in a passive way, which might have some interesting dynamics. I can't really work out whether that's good or bad (laughs) for passive investors. I think you can actually argue it might make the listed markets more efficient, but less attractive as an investment because you reduce the number of companies, although there's some evidence that the number of companies is as much through M&A as it is through private equity. But if you reduce the number of listed companies, then the market probably becomes more efficient, but you probably want to get access to those other companies that are disappearing somehow as well. So the idea of only having listed markets becomes a bit more problematic, especially if companies are going public later in their journey. There's then a much bigger gap in terms of what you're getting exposure to. Back on that point of private versus listed markets, around the edges, there is a little bit of change, I would say, a little bit, wouldn't you say? You're seeing things like real estate investment trusts, listed infrastructure, investment trusts generally doing a bit of private markets in a listed space. And so there's maybe a slight glimmer of potential options there. And those are areas where you could, in theory, have passive developing a bit more. Yeah. I mean, many of those companies will already be included in the standard equity market index, but people who want that particular type of exposure, which is a bit more secure income, more around the income coming off a a set of capital, a rental income, style income, rather than an operating company risky income, then there is certainly options around that. I do think that there is the debate to be had around what market exposure do I get from the listed option and what market exposure do I get from the private option and how different is that? And should we be encouraging one type or the other type for our clients? And whether there's an element here of managers particularly will find the private option more profitable and whether there's an element of being a little bit skeptical about some of the illiquid options we're seeing and thinking, well, maybe the listed option is as good. It gives you the same similar underlying exposure. You just get a lot of mark-to-market volatility that you're maybe not seeing in the private market. And that's not very attractive, but perhaps it's a better reflection of reality. And of course, we spoke last week to Ludovic on, well, on exactly being sceptical about performance results from private market investments. So a nice link there. Matt, you mentioned alternative forms of indices. I wonder if we could just spend a couple of minutes on that before we close this episode. So, so far, we talked about market cap indices, but there are increasingly a large number of indices and increasing assets that are being managed tracking those indices, which aren't market cap weighted. They have some variation, normally a tilt around that market cap weight. And that tilt might be to increase the weight to companies with good ESG credentials or good climate credentials, or it might be to increase the weight to certain other traits that people find attractive, such as more value style or more high quality style. And those indices, as I say, look like a low governance, cheap option to get that sort of exposure. But my view is you need to be a little bit skeptical about that and a little bit wary about the governance and the quality of the product you're purchasing in doing that. Now, that's not to say that these are largely done very well, but there are a number of parties involved and it's not clear that any of them really have 
your fiduciary interest at heart when they're doing the, each of their roles. So let me just talk through the different parties. So you've got somebody who comes up with the rules around the index. So that might be along the lines of let's increase the weight in some specified way to a company with a good ESG score. And that would be the weight for that company. And then for each company in the possible universe, they'll assign a weight. So there'll be a set rule around how to actually get that weight. And that's the index designer. They might be an index provider as well. So the index provider's role is to take those rules and then on a day-to-day basis, calculate which stocks should be in the index and what weight they should be in at. It's a fairly mechanical role, but involves a lot of care about making sure you've got the right data, making sure there's no data errors, making sure that you can put that list together regularly, you can communicate to those that need it properly, all are sort of more operational steps. And then we've got at least one other party, the investment manager, takes the list of stocks the index provider has sent them and purchases the portfolio, or on a day-to-day basis, makes adjustments to the portfolio to reflect any new changes in weight. In a situation where something goes wrong, the index designer says, well, I just set the rules, did it once, did it years ago, haven't really looked at it since. The index provider, the calculator, just says, well, I'm just implementing those rules and I've done that for you. And I don't have any direct relationship with you as the investor in the fund. So don't have any liability to you either. And the investment manager just says, well, I took the list of stocks and I invested in the way that I was told to. And so there are situations where errors could happen that no one puts their hand up and says, yeah, that was my fault. I'm going to compensate you for it. So I'm just a little wary that we need to make sure that there are proper due diligence operational steps in place at each of those stages that make sure that this thing is all being done properly. And as I say, in 99% of cases, we find it is, but there are one or two errors that we've seen creep in where we just feel that, or I just feel that you need to take a lot of care. And in in looking at new products in this area, we just need to be a bit wary about making sure that all those things are done properly. Of course, there's another party as well, which is the advisor or consultant who said you should look at that whole thing in the first place, but they aren't party to that actual inner workings of how it gets invested either. I sent you a meme the other day, didn't I, Matt? It's that Spider-Man meme where all the Spider-Men are pointing at each other and looking at each other. I do think that in the absolute worst version of what you described ends up at that, where everyone's sort of saying, well, hang on, I just do this small little role and I did it fine. And there's a circular kind of pointing around. The other point I always think is that I think in theory, you want someone who's thinking about the investor, like behaving as if this is my money sort of thing, someone in the chain thinking, how would I want this to be done if it was my money? And the worry if you slice that up too much is actually no one is taking that view in there. Like you say, it doesn't mean you can't get comfortable with particular products. And obviously we use those products and we think some of them are great, but there's a certain bar they have to pass to get that. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. We're coming towards the end of the episode now. I wondered what is the one thing that you'd like listeners to take away from today? I think we've covered it, but I think it's don't default into passive in all markets. Just make sure you think about it, review the appropriateness of it. And my view is the burden of proof on whether you should invest in passive should lie with the passive manager. They should be persuading you that passive is appropriate rather than, as I say, defaulting into it. It's a provocative question, but you don't see passive managers making that case very often, do you? They aren't asked to either. That's probably why they don't, but interesting one. Matt, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? I think the, the most unappreciated thing, it's not really underappreciated, but I think it's the thing that people get wrong most. So I'm going to answer a slightly different question, <laughs> is holding your nerve on underperformance. You know, whether that's in a market or whether that's in a particular manager underperforming an index, 
the thing that people get wrong is to lose faith too quickly, read across from underperformance to other smaller flaws, monitoring points, and think those are worse than they are, and then sell at the bottom. And I think that is the thing that most people get wrong. There's been a few studies that have shown that people make the wrong asset allocation decisions, make the wrong manager selection decisions at the wrong time and exacerbate underperformance by locking it in, crystallizing it, and selling it the wrong. You're almost saying that they overconnect the dots, if you like. So they say like, oh, there's been a bit of underperformance and they just had a load of inflows and they just hired some more people, which might be things that you just wouldn't care about at all normally and maybe overconnect something like that. Is that what you're saying? And then suddenly it builds into this big story. Yeah, I mean, there's an element of that, I think, from a lot of, well, not a lot, but many people who, who justify a sell decision will justify it, not on the underperformance, but I often see that the underperformance is really the underlying reason. <laughs> They've used other points to justify it more thoroughly. Which I think probably works the other way around too, doesn't it? When you're making a buy decision, often you try really hard not to be swayed by a good track record, but a good track record is fairly common, I think, in funds that are bought by investors. It's very hard. I mean, we all fall into it. I mean, whether we're consultants or clients, I think everyone falls into the same sort of traps there. But uh, We're just tricking our own behavior in those issues, aren't we? It's so fascinating. We kind of like sort of know what your behavior is and we're tricking ourselves that it's not that, but finding another way to do it. We'll definitely give you that as underappreciated, Matt. I'm sure we can construct that sentence in a way that it answers the actual question we asked. Final question, Matt. Do you have any recommendations, books, podcasts, TV shows? So I try not to get too drawn into day-to-day noise in the market. So I don't have anything current for you in terms of books and podcasts, but I have reread something recently that just always amazes me at how insightful it is to today's markets. So my recommendation is to read The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope, published in 1875. Oh, wow. And thoroughly relevant to investing and being duped and being conned by great salesmen even today. Excellent. I love a reread recommendation. Dan, have you read that? No, I have not read that. No, yeah. So I'm making a note right now that I love a reread recommendation. And I think, Matt, you're one of the first guests on our podcast show ever who's recommended a book that Dan hasn't already read. So that's excellent. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) All right, Matt, it's been an absolutely brilliant conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. Quite all right. Thanks so much indeed. Very nice to be on. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Matt. Good to have you on here again. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But join us again for another episode next week. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.